The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Jenny Evans, stress resiliency expert, speaker, and author. Uh, she is the author. Her new book is The Resiliency Revolution, Your Stress Solution for Life, 60 Seconds at a Time. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jenny. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Well, your area of expertise, this is your new book, The Resiliency Revolution. Uh, I know your area of expertise is uh, working with Fortune 500 companies, helping them to help their employees and their executives to be resilient to stress so that they can produce more. And uh, um, and it's a huge problem, I understand, in the uh, corporate, um, in the workforce, but also with just People in general, families, individuals, stress. You know, we're always trying to get rid of stress. I know as a social worker, I'm always dealing with clients who are stressed out. Uh, but your book, as I understand it, whether it's in the corporate sector or with individuals and families, has to do with the fact that we're never going to be able to get rid of stress, so we have to learn how to be resilient to stress. Absolutely. To your point, stress does not discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. It really is a fact of life. And my approach to stress is completely different because typically the conversation is about, well, let's talk about how you can better manage your stress or how we can reduce your stress. But nobody's job is ever going to ask any less of them. Nobody's family, loved ones are going to ask less of them. The reality is, is that for all of us, the stress in our life is going to continue to increase. And so having the conversation about reducing stress is a complete waste of time. So my background in exercise physiology and psychology, my, you know, my approach is if the stress in your life is not going to decrease, the only other option that's available to us then is to train our bodies to recover from stress more quickly and more efficiently and to raise our threshold for stress. And that's how you can build physiological resiliency to stress. And in the process, it also improves your performance and your health. Yeah, and one of the things I think that I want to point out because that, that you point out in your book is we, is stress is not necessarily mental. We think of it as stress is emotional. We have this emotional reaction, but it's physical. It's and it's a physical stress that impacts on our body. So maybe we need to talk about that first. Like define stress. It's not just an emotional reaction. It's a physical reaction which impacts our bodies and over a period of time causes a lot of damage. Right. I mean, stress really is a chemistry problem. It's not something that happens in our brains. Anytime we're exposed to stress, before we've really even consciously registered it, the body has secreted stress hormones like cortisol that radically shift our chemistry and physiology. It can have some really negative side effects in the world that we're living in today. And, you know, in the book, I talk about the fact that in response to stress, actually make things worse. So we'll try to cope by, you know, staying up late or getting up early to try to get a jump on work. We'll skip meals and then end up reaching for sugar, for caffeine, nicotine to get us going. And then at the end of the day, we can't relax. And so we'll reach for alcohol to slow us down. Our workouts are the first things that get cut off of our list. And this actually just increases the physiological stress. And so the resiliency revolution the book is um, helping people to understand, here's what's happening in your entire body and brain in response to stress, and it's all happening for a very important reason. It's a beautifully designed system 
if we do what I call play it out. And that is when we're exposed to stress, we're really just stimulating the fight or flight response. And when we get this short burst of, in, of intense physical activity that mimics this fighting and or fleeing, the body burns off those stress hormones that it releases and then releases another set of hormones like endorphins, endocannabinoids, dopamine. I call these the bliss molecules. And these can bliss stop, molecules... Jenny, you, I mean, can we stop here because I really think it helps if we have some examples. Like, what are we talking... You're describing what happens. Well, I understand. But now, can we, can we kind of interject, like, what... Give us an example, either in the work, situation or at home, uh, coping with family stress, but maybe let's start with work. Uh, What kind of a situation are we talking about? Sure. Oh, my gosh. Endless scenarios. Let's say you are in a meeting. Um, Things are not going well. It's highly emotional. Uh, People can't agree on things. People are just getting really frustrated. It's escalating. And everybody in there is now in survival mode. They're in stress response. Now, the body has released those stress hormones in order to fuel the body for fighting and fleeing. And when we fight and flee, it hits the reset button. But obviously, in a meeting, you can't stand up and just, like, start, you know, throwing chairs or put your boss in a, you know, a headlock and start wrestling. So ideally, you know, in that scenario, as soon as the meeting is over, while you're, you know, going to your next meeting that you're already late for because meetings never end on time, instead of taking the elevator, you go to the stairwell and you sprint up the two flight of stairs that it takes you to get to the next floor for your meeting. And that short burst of intense physical activity just burned off those stress hormones and released those bliss molecules that not only restore balance, they actually neutralize some of those negative side effects from cortisol and the other stress hormones. No, so it's that easy. In other words, don't reach into your pocketbook and grab a candy bar or go out and, and smoke a cigarette. Uh, but you're saying just walk up the stairs to the, you know, or walk down two blocks to the next building or whatever you have to do. And I think you mentioned this in the book. We are kind of programs like the caveman or the cavewoman. When we, the stress is some big, uh, maybe animal is coming after us, then we're going to fight back. And that's what we're programmed for. And, you know, fast forward to now, it really doesn't work in our modern day society. So we have to do something physical like you just described, and that will get rid of the, those stress or deplete those stress hormones that are, uh, I guess, that that are just uh, wrecking havoc on our bodies? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the strategies that's in the book. You know, in the title of the book, Resiliency Revolution, revolution is spelled little r, big E, because you're right. You know, our DNA has changed very little in the past 10,000 years. We are still cavemen, but we're living in this crazy advanced modern society that's really short-circuiting how we're designed to, to function best. We are designed to be constantly in motion. We are designed to eat food when it's available um, and eat the most high-calorie versions of those foods. Well, foods are now, like, completely engineered in laboratories to appeal to our, you know, our primitive taste buds, high fat, high sugar. So now, you know, our environments, we're trying to have to resist, you know, eating these high-fat, high-sugar foods. We're trying to get our body, you know, to move our bodies more. But the environments that we're living and working in are really designed in in opposition to that. So there's also tools in the book that talk about how can you make really small tweaks to your home and work environment that are more conducive to staying resilient. Okay, let's say we started with work, so let's kind of finish with that one. Walking up, you know, walking up and down the stairs, for instance, to the next meeting, if you've had like a, a particularly horrific meeting, um, and or I suppose walking outside. What, but so, what else can we do for in a work situation? I'll tell you an example that happens to me quite often. Um, I have to, as a speaker, I'm in the airport and I'm traveling, and oftentimes your flight is delayed or you, you know, you're going to miss a connection, and so you know your stress hormones are totally going because. You're going to be in big trouble if you don't make that next flight. And having to sprint from gate to gate with all of your bags, you know, I I get to that next flight. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I made it. 
I hit that reset nut, um, button on stress. I got my sprint interval training workout. And now that I'm on the plane, you know, those stress hormones have been burned off. I can relax. And now I can, again, focus, be really productive, get lots of work done on the plane, and show up to my speaking event in a state of calm and balance. Oh, I'm going to, but I have to add another piece to that. What about your plane supposedly is on time, and I've been in this situation several times. I get to the airport. I think everything's going well. I get in the plane. We taxi out to the tarmac, and then I learn that we're going to be sitting here for two hours because we can't take off because for <laughs> numerous reasons. Now I'm stuck in this little tube, and I know I'm not going to be able to, let's say, make my next flight that's going to get me to my meeting. There's absolutely nothing... I can do about it. I'm sitting cramped in this space. I order a drink, which is exactly, and and you can't always get served a drink either, but uh, so that's not the right thing to do. So what do you do in that situation? Right. In that situation, the goal should be not to make your stress worse. So alcohol does stimulate the stress response. Um, High sugar foods, high sugar snack foods stimulate the stress response. So, you know, the best strategy would be to stay hydrated. So drink plenty of water. Um, At the airport, as I, I talk about in the book, you would have filled your briefcase with snacks that are good for uh, performance and they balance blood glucose so that they're not adding stress. And you have a low glycemic snack, so you are doing everything you can to keep your physiology in check and not make matters worse. So nutrition is really important, good nutrition, not a candy bar, not, uh, you know, not not these sugary chemical uh, sweets and stuff, but make sure that you really have good nutritional food with you. That helps. So you need nutrition. And, and I guess all the time that obviously is, is what helps you. But in that situation, how about talking to somebody? Is that helpful if they'll talk to you? <laughs> you know, I mean, it can be. But I, again, my strategy, and this is what it makes the book unique, is it's about changing your internal chemistry and physiology. Um, because I think a lot of times like stress management techniques, those are things that you're doing after this total stress hormone tsunami in the body that has created these negative side effects. The resiliency revolution is really about stopping these negative chemical side effects from happening in the first place. So, you know, yeah, it can be nice to talk to somebody afterwards, but the resiliency revolution is really about building a resilient physiology so that we don't have these negative side effects of stress later on. All right, so that's critical. I mean, that would seem to me, and of course that plays out just in in everything we do. I mean, that's at home, that's at work, nutrition, 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 right? It's really critical to to have that good nutrition available to you. and I, I think that we're bombarded every day with the – it's very difficult to make that, I guess you call the optimal default, which is what we want to do, um, because all the other stuff is out there. Like, you know, it's so available to us. I mean, I was – and I think I mentioned this once on my show. We were in – I think maybe it was um, – it was in the Midwest somewhere at an airport, and it was early in the morning, and we were trying to catch a flight, and it was, I think it was Oklahoma City. And we were at the airport. There, wasn't, there were, like, rows and rows of places to buy food, and there was no place where you could buy a banana or an apple or ha- even have an egg that wasn't fried. Um, and, and you had to walk, I think, about at least a quarter of a mile or more to get to one little kiosk that sold healthy food. And I know that that's not just, and, and, and unfortunately, I think that's played out in many of our cities, especially here in the United States. Right. I mean, nutrition is such a, an important part, and it's an entire chapter of the book. And the nutrition is, again, a different approach because I think oftentimes we don't recognize that just our habits and routines around nutrition are also adding more stress to our bodies. So, for instance, Anytime we go longer than four hours without eating, it stimulates the stress response. The body releases cortisol, and cortisol's job is to make us hungry. And cortisol wants to do a really good job of getting energy into the body, so it makes us specifically hunt out some high-fat, 
high sugar foods to get energy into the body. And that cortisol also makes us store this energy as fat around the midsection, which then adds stress because it raises our risk of cardiovascular disease, of stroke, of cancer. Um, and just having extra fat on the body can be stressful as well. So the nutrition strategies in the book, um, they're really all about how do you minimize the stress on your body from a nutrition perspective. And these are strategies that anybody can do in any circumstance because there's a lot of flexibility and choice that's involved. The last thing I want to do is ask people to make change that's just going to add more stress to their lives. You know, being a part of the resiliency revolution means these are simple 60-second solutions that you can do every day that are really going to make an impact on your resiliency, your performance, your health, your sleep, and your energy. So let's talk about more of those 60-second solutions. I mean, because, yes, they can be used, it sounds like, most any time by most any of us in different kinds of situations. Um, let's talk about college students because there's a lot of stress, uh, you know, in school, uh, particularly in college. Uh, how, you know, do you have examples of that, for, you, know, sp- you know, specific kinds of incidences where we can do what you're telling us, like uh, apply the nutrition response? Sure. I mean, I think a a great stress scenario for college students is finals week, where that's a lot of stress to perform well. So one scenario with that is you're spending a lot of time sitting, studying, writing, whatever you're doing, is to take little breaks, you know, let's say every 30 minutes, where you're just going to stand up and just using your own body weight, you're going to do some burpees, some squat jumps, some jumping jacks, just for, you know, 60 seconds, maybe 120 seconds. You're going to hit that reset reset button on stress. You're going to get some energy. You're going to get some more mental focus and clarity by doing that. And then, you know, in those same situations, it's easy to reach for junk food while you're studying. So making sure that, you know, in your dorm room that you've got an array of really quick, easy snacks, things like nuts, uh, dried fruit, um, some energy bars that are are low in sugar, um, you know, to your point, like having things like hard-boiled eggs, things that are really quick and easy that are going to help you to, to really maintain your blood glucose so that you can function optimally, not only physically, but psychologically, your brain as well. I think what's so intriguing about about your book is, or the resiliency revolution is, that it's it, it's it goes kind of contrary in a good way, I guess, to what we tend to do. We tend to be kind of like an all-or-nothing society. You know, you work hard all day, and then you're going to, you know, re- relieve your stress by going to the gym for two hours, and, you know, you have this intense workout. Then you come home, and you have to intensely deal with your family. So there's all this kind of like going from the all-or-nothing rather than, as you say, kind of like little 60-second workouts or 60-second nutrition pieces. Um, and, I, I mean, as I'm listening to you, I can see that must have so much less, create so much less stress for your body, helps you to become more resilient. We seem to be doing the opposite, I think, culturally or as a society. Yeah, we really are. I mean, and I'm glad you bring this idea up of exercise, thinking like, well, if, if I don't have 60 minutes, Um, then I I just don't have time. I can't do it at all. Well, you know, research shows that really from a fitness perspective, the most efficient and effective way of improving fitness is short burst interval training, which is 60 seconds of working really, really hard and then giving yourself about 60 seconds and recover. You know, that's training your body to recover from stress more quickly and more efficiently, and it's raising your body's threshold for stress. And we know that it's the fastest way to improve your your fitness. So, you know, to your point, the good news is is that if you have, you know, set your alarm clock 10 minutes early in the morning and do a few of these short bursts, you know, interval training, maybe you can grab a few minutes over your lunch hour and then... You know, when you get home from work, that's how you decompress. I tell people, embrace the gray. To your point, things are not black or white. There's always something we can do. It might not be 
as much as we wanted to, but it's better to do some gray than to do nothing at all. And if we start doing that, uh, Jenny, do you think that after a while we begin to actually experience that we do feel better? You know, we begin to change our habits, and I, I keep going back to that word you call optimal defaults when we default to this kind of behavior, that it sort of takes on a life of its own. We, we actually begin to feel better. Um, and Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're in the habit of resiliency training, it's really a natural part of of who you are. And when you have a routine, you know, you're really rarely thrown off balance. And if you are, it's really easy for you to just get back into routine again. And, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times these optimal defaults. Um, people love this part of the book because this is about how can you practice lifestyle behaviors that are, are better for you in a way where they actually happen automatically. You don't even have to try and you don't even have to think about it. So an example of an optimal default would be, you know, if we go long periods of time without eating, well, then we end up overeating and too much food is also a stress on the body. So here's one simple strategy. Research shows that if we switch from a 12-inch dinner plate to a 10-inch dinner plate, we eat 22% less food without even knowing that we're doing it. So just by creating an optimal default of a smaller plate size, we're automatically making a change without having to try. And so the book is full of strategies of what are some nutrition optimal defaults? What are some optimal defaults you can create when you're at work, when you're eating out, when you're traveling, when you're exercising, when you're at the grocery store? Um, because willpower is a, a very short-term uh, resource. The more we use it, the less we have, and then we're just like left just doing whatever we can. Well, optimal defaults, they, what they do is they even, you don't even have to use willpower because this is just using the unconscious part of your brain. You've manipulated your environment to just gently nudge you into practicing a behavior um, that's more conducive to your resiliency and your health. Yeah, and you mentioned we only have a couple minutes left, but there was one I was kind of intrigued with, and I want you just quickly to explain it because you say use a desk chair without wheels. What is that going to do with for us? Yeah, you know, like when we're at work, you know, we're working at our desk, and we need that piece of paper from, like, way three feet away. How we typically get it is that we roll our chair over and we roll ourselves back. You know, again, being sedentary is really not good for our body and our brain, so to simply switch to a chair that doesn't roll so that you actually just have to stand up periodically throughout your day to move around your office to get a piece of paper. Um, another great optimal default is on the phone equals on your feet. I'm actually walking around my office right now as we're talking that the sound of your phone is your signal for you to stand up and take that call. These are great suggestions. Obviously, there are many more in the book. We only have about a minute left, so I want to make sure that, well, um, listeners can obviously buy your book online, bookstores everywhere. The Resiliency Revolution, your stress solution for life, 60 seconds at a time. Uh, what website can we go to to learn more about the book and what you do? Um, I, I think there are several websites, actually, but could you mention a couple? You bet. So um, I'm Powerhouse Performance, and the website address is ph-performance.com. You can buy the book. You can read the blog. I like to fill it with all sorts of resources and tips that people can start becoming more resilient right away. Yeah. Well, you, well, you write a blog for Huffington Post? I do, yes. I'm a regular contributor to the Huffington Post blog as well. So if you want to... Uh, Know more about Jenny Evans, you can do that. You can uh, see, uh, read her blog on Huffington Post, and you can buy the book, The Resiliency Revolution, Your Stress Solution for Life 60 Seconds at a Time. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. It was great. Great to have you. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Thank you. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. It's time to take a new look at some of life's changing moments. It's time to listen to an expert who has been there and can provide insight through experience, studies, and enlightening guests. Tune in to Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets. Host Lindsay Levinson takes a look at relationships, parenting, health and wellness, divorce, depression, sexuality, philanthropy, and mental health. You'll look at everything you know in a different way. Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets, airs Wednesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Well, welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Rachel Pratt. Now, Rachel serves as Chief Executive Officer of the Adoption Exchange Association, a national membership organization, and the lead agency in the collaboration to adopt U.S. kids, the Children's Bureau's national initiative to recruit foster and adoptive parents for waiting children. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rachel. Thank you, Catherine. Great to be here. Well, you're the expert, obviously, in adoption. Uh, in, as you know, I'm a social worker, and I've had very little experience in adoption. I've sort of worked at the other end, geriatrics, uh, hospital care, that those kinds of things. And for social workers, our reputation is that uh, we take kids away from their parents and put them in foster care, uh, and we're the bad guys. So... Um, and that's not what we're talking about. So we want to kind of eliminate some of those stereotypes. But um, as I understand it, there are more than 102,000 children waiting for adoption from the foster care system in the United States. That's true, yes. Well, given that, uh, obviously you have a big job to do. What is the initiative for these children? 102,000 children. I mean, that's a lot of kids just here in the United States. Um what are we right. doing about it? What are you doing about it? Is <laughs> so there's a lot of people out there. I'm not the only one. This is not uh, yeah. just my single-handed effort, right? Yeah. So um, I I work for an organization called the Adoption Exchange Association, and we um, hold the cooperative agreement for Adopt U.S. Kids. And Adopt U.S. Kids is a federal program with the Children's Bureau and the Ad Council, um, and Adopt U.S. Kids, and we are helping states, territories, and tribes to um, 
more quickly and find families and place children in foster homes. Children, I'm sorry, children who are in foster care in adoptive homes. So of the total children in foster care, there's a much smaller number of children who do need adoptive placement. So many children who come into foster care do eventually go home to their families. But um, right now, there's 102,000 children who can't go back home to their families. And those are the children we're talking about, the waiting children, the children who need to have a family who will adopt them and be their parents forever. All right, let's talk about some of the obstacles to being able to do that, because obviously there are a lot, there are many, and that's what you're dealing with on a daily basis. Uh, what are some of the major obstacles or preventing these kids in foster care from becoming adopted? A lot of the children who we're talking about, of that 102,000 children, they're older children, and families tend to go into adoption thinking about infants and or or very young children. I think people are changing their minds some, and there's a lot of kids adopted from foster care every year. There's about 50,000 children every year adopted from the foster care system, but it's really a rethinking about um, who are the children that you want to adopt and how old are those children and, and reframing the issue in the minds of families. Um, what we're trying to do through our campaign right now, which I'm here to talk about too, our national campaign, is that... Um, you really don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent, and there's a lot of, of older children and sibling groups, brothers and sisters who need to be adopted together who are available for adoption. Well, I mean, you have, I mean, I guess that was one of the, I had I've seen that, I guess, maybe on the television. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Um, that doesn't seem to be the only issue because I think it, just as you said earlier, it's the parents who think they have to adopt the perfect child, you know, the newborn, the new baby, uh, and they're they're not and they're adverse to adopting an older child who may be what have disabilities, mentally or social or emotional, or they're afraid of that. I mean, let's talk about some of those things because I think, sure. you know, I think as a social worker, I think that's some of the stuff that gets in the way of people wanting to adopt older children. Right. And, you know, of course, any child who's been removed from their family of origin and has gone through what a lot of the kids in foster care have gone through have experienced trauma in their lives. And that can have an effect on children, absolutely. So um, what we are looking for and what these children really need is, is families who are going to be there for the long run, who are going to love them and make a commitment to them and be their advocate and find the services that they need as a family. There's lots of supports. The states, you would work, if you were adopting from the foster care system, you work directly with the state that you live in. And you would work with that state for ongoing support of these children. Um, to help you to be able to um, meet all their needs. Well, how do you get over the stigma? Because I think I keep going, you know, how do you, how do you sort of get parents to think about adopting a child in a different way? That it's not, you don't need to adopt a baby or a newborn, but um, these children need you and you need them just as much. And how do you kind of change, you know what I mean, change kind of that sure. attitude? Because it is an attitude change, isn't it? Right. I mean, there's going to be some families who continue to want to adopt an infant, and that's fine. I had children. You had children, right? We've all yeah, raised I our have children. Three. Right, me too. So um, there are families who will want to, to add to their families through adoption of an infant or a younger child. Um, we're reaching out to the families who may be willing to think bigger about that. And we've been running this campaign with the Ad Council for the past 10 years. This is our 10th anniversary, and we just launched in November. The, um, the campaign really is looking to change minds, but it's not looking to change minds from people who never considered adoption. It's really looking to reach out to people who might have considered it, maybe know someone who's adopted in the past, are thinking about it. We find a lot of families adopt who have already raised children and really feel confident that they can raise children, right? They feel very strong about that. Maybe they're empty nesters now. Maybe their children are a little bit older and they feel ready to take on some new challenges. So really that's the kind of family that we're hoping with this campaign to reach, families who are thinking about adoption and, and thinking that they have what it takes to be able to do this. So then what do you do? Let's say you have a family because you want to match the family up with the child. Um, mm -hmm. so that there are certain families who may be more prone to or more appropriate for raising older children. And uh, you mentioned one case, some, a 
couples or who have who are empty nesters and have raised children and want to raise more children and have the experience and will be good parents. Um, any other kinds of parents? Are there any parents who specifically would not be appropriate for uh, for adopting an older child or children? There's there's no sort of general grouping of parents who wouldn't be appropriate for adoption of a child from foster care. Thirty percent of our families across the country um, who've adopted children from foster care are single parents. So you don't have to be married to be able to adopt from the foster care system. You don't have to own a home. You can rent. You can. Um, you need to have a stable life. You need yeah. to be able to prove that you're stable enough to raise a child in your home. But um, the really all kinds of families can what about explore gay this parents? process. Two moms, two dads. Absolutely. Two moms, two dads, one mom, one dad. So any kind of combination and permutation, as long as people are good people with good character and have good intentions. Right. And it's really up to each state. The laws on adoption are state by state. So the first, when you call Adopt US Kids, the first step in the process, we have a conversation and we talk to you about really what you're thinking and looking for and help you think a little bit more about your next steps and, and how you want to pursue this and if you do want to pursue this. And then the next step after that would be to reach out to your own state and we would connect you with your state so that you can find out what has to happen in your state. Well, as I understand it, also one of the initiatives involves the fact that children very often have siblings who also need to be adopted. And so you want, and they do much better if the parents or parent uh, adopts the siblings, um, which is not always an easy thing to do for a lot of reasons, but that that really works best for the child if that's possible. So, and that's something that you're right. trying, yeah. It is. Each year, yeah, each year our campaign has a theme, and this year's theme is, is sibling groups, those brothers and sisters who, um, as you know from your own children and I know from my children, that siblings really need to be together. It's the longest relationship that you have in your life, and if you're separated from your family, your parents, then um, you need your siblings around you, right? We don't want to separate siblings from each other. So in when it's at all possible, and, and we certainly hope that it's possible every time, but this year the campaign is reaching out to really um, let potential parents know that that's what we really have a need for, too. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that may be difficult, wouldn't it, just from a financial point of view, for instance. Maybe you have uh, a potential parents or parent who want to adopt, but they mm-hmm. don't feel they can afford to adopt two children or three children even. They can only afford to adopt one. Uh, are there ways in which to help them to do that or... Or how does that work? Sure. So adoption from foster care, there are no costs to adopt from foster care. And, in fact, many states will um, be able to help you. And um, there, there, there are financial incentives. There is a tax credit if there are, if you adopt with a private agency through a state. There's an adoption tax credit that might help you defray some of the small costs that could be incurred. But um, it really doesn't take a lot financially to adopt a child from foster care. Rachel, what are some of the most difficult cases, real examples that you've had that have been really tough cases for you that maybe turned out well or that didn't turn out well? Hmm. Um, well, I think of the, the, the larger sibling groups, that, that when it gets into higher numbers, and I'm from New York City. I know you're in New York State also. Um, from New York City, that it's always hard to find families for larger sibling groups inside a city, and we've had instances where a family couldn't adopt all of the larger sibling group, but then maybe another family member could adopt the other children in that sibling group so that the, the children were kept together and the brothers and sisters were able to maintain contact um, and be connected and be in each other's families, even if they couldn't all live every day in the same home. Does it always turn out that everybody lives happily ever after, or what happens if one adopts a child and then finds out or that maybe this isn't working or 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 it's just not the right fit or is, is does that ever come into play? We certainly would never want that to happen no and and we would do everything. The states that were the, and the nonprofit organizations that work with the families in those states try to help make sure that, first off, that the families are really committed to this because the, the only one um, that there should never be an out. You wouldn't have an out with your own biological children. 
There shouldn't be an out with adopted children. These are your children, and you've made a commitment to raise these children. So how do you vet the families? I don't know if that's the right word, but okay. You have a family. They re- really want to adopt a child or maybe a child and, or siblings. Um, what's the process they have to go through, let's say, here in New York State? Right. And again, that's different by state. Every state has a home study and process and training requirements. So there is some upfront training and there's ongoing training um, while the child is in the early stages of placement with you. Um, there's also supports available. But the home study process would mean that a social worker would be assigned to your case, your, your home, and would come out and make some home visits and have conversations with you and the other members of your family and, um, and make an assessment to just make sure that this is a good home for children, to determine what ages and numbers of children that um, your family would be able to parent and, you know, there's, there's also some background checks also and references. And so how long is that process usually? It varies. It can take uh, as short as a month. It can take several months. And what is usually, I mean, I'm just talking, we're talking about New York State because that obviously that's where we are, but uh, mm-hmm. how often do they reject parents? Let's say you go through this process um, for the period of time you just described, you know, when they just, that, that, they, they, this, you know, family is not going to work or that we can't allow them to adopt. I mean, is there any percentages involved or do we? No, I, I don't know percentages on that. I know that social workers approach this looking at parents as potential families for the children in care. And there would be every hope that that family could be certified. So we're not looking for reasons to not certify families. Of course, if something comes up that makes it not a suitable placement, then that family wouldn't be certified. How, and you've been in this field for a very long time, I get my question is, how did you first, you know, um, get involved with the whole adoption, uh, well, in, in New York State and I guess across the country as well? How did I personally get involved? I yeah, how did you personally get involved? Like personally, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it says here you have an MS in nonprofit management, management from uh, New School University. Um, you have three children. You have all the credentials. But just from a you know personal perspective, how did you get involved in this whole adoption thing? Yeah, well, I'm not a social worker, unlike you. I'm I am um, a policy person, and I got into this by taking a job at at, um, the Administration for Children's Services in New York City many years ago. Just sort of happened upon it, and it seemed like a great fit, and it stuck. It it seemed to be a place that was both interesting to me and really um, it feels every day like I'm doing good. Well, you are doing good, and I, and that was, I guess that was my next question. Now, do you get feedback after you've, you know, I mean, obviously you're, you're, um, well, you're, you're the executive director, et cetera, but do you get a lot of feedback afterward, a lot of, uh, from the, either the families or the children, you, you know, in terms of, you know, how things have worked out or how they are working out or, we are really fortunate with Adopt US Kids to have a group of um, spokesfamilies who are adoptive families who we hear from all the time. I don't hear specifically about what I did or what my staff did, although sometimes I hear about, about what my staff did. Um, but we do hear a lot of stories from those families that really keep us motivated all the time. And I think we also got we get a lot of feedback about our ad campaign, and um, we haven't um, spoken a lot about the ad campaign. That's in for the last ten years. We've worked directly with the Ad Council, which is our their nonprofit also, and they have taken on this cause. And there are they have wonderful firms in New York City: Kirschenbaum, Baum, Senecal, and Partners, and Hinge Digital have taken on the campaign this year, and they've done the pro bono creation of the campaign. So um, we hear a lot of feedback from our ad campaign. And that's terrific to know that it's. I mean, we get feedback as in people call and say, we love your campaign, or people say, I've heard about your campaign. But we can also see about numbers, numbers of feedback, how many, how many Facebook likes we have and how many followers we have on Twitter and how many people come to our website because they've heard about adoption through Adopt US Kids and through the ad campaign. So all that is really, really positive. So that's been very, very successful. And what you say, it's been, well, well 10 years, that's a long time. Right. Yeah. Right. 
So this year, the initiative for the campaign, does it change every year, kind of? Is, is the one to, for this year, adopt a sibling? Yes. Right now, this year, it's, it's not – we certainly don't want to discourage families who, who can only adopt one child. Um, we are highlighting and focusing this year on, on siblings in foster care, but certainly we need families for children who can, or for, we need families who can adopt children who are waiting, whether they can adopt a sibling group or not. Um, so, yes, and last year our theme was older youth. Older youth, I mean, it seems to me just, to, you know, and as I said, I haven't had a lot of experience in um, in adoption or working with adoption agencies, but uh, friends of mine who have or colleagues, I mean, that always seems to be there, that 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 not kind of adopting an older child, which mm-hmm. what, what, was, what was what would be the oldest child that you, that one would adopt? Well, uh, youth can be in care up until 21, uh-huh. so you can certainly, there's teens, there's older teens. You can adopt. I know stories of people who, young people who didn't want to be adopted when their rights needed to be terminated from their biological parents, but they consented to an adult adoption with the family who had committed to them. So um, those are wonderful stories also. Okay. They have a lifelong family, but they don't legalize that adoption until they're adults. Adopting a teen, a, a teenager. So, would you be t- if you're adopting a teenager? Let's get back to that. And that's someone who is, um, I guess, been in the foster care system, obviously, till they're like 16 years old. Let's say, mm-hmm. what you know, adopting a 16 year old um, is a formidable task. Can we talk about that? <laughs> raising a 16 year old? No matter is a what, formidable right? Task. Yeah. Right, right. So it's you know it's the same story as adopting a younger child. You you make a commitment to that particular child and and that's it. And you find the resources that that child needs if they're educational, if they're helping the child recover from trauma, whatever it is that that child and you as a family need to raise that child and and make a stable family for that child. Are there any requirements for the the, the uh, potential um, the parents? Uh, do they like in terms of education or their experience? And obviously, mental health is an issue, I'm sure. But like specifically, any kind of educational requirements they have to have graduated? No, from, no, nope, they don't. None. High school, no, or right. yeah. Yeah. No, again, you know, again, it would be on an individual basis and the home study would assess and make sure that you have a stable family living situation, but there's no high school diploma requirement. There's no college education requirement. Sure, there's families of all kinds of different backgrounds who are just wonderful parents to children in foster care. And what about other things like ethnicity or religion? Um, let's say you have uh, an Asian family who wants to adopt a, um, a black child or a Jewish family who wants to adopt a Catholic child. How does that work? Well, federal law prohibits the delay or denial of an adoptive placement based on the race or ethnicity of a child in foster care um, and the prospective parents who are willing to adopt them. So the only exception to that law is Native American children, and special considerations there apply. But other than that, you can be any race or ethnicity. You don't be, have to be the same race or ethnicity as the child you're adopting. So why, uh, why is there a special case with the Native American children? Just under federal law, there is federal law that applies only to Native American children, and they, they fall under tribal considerations. That's interesting. I had no idea. Um, uh, and I'm sure many people aren't aware of that. So, okay, so the religion, ethnicity, uh, race—that has nothing to do with the adoption. I mean, it's. I mean, right. they, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and let me just talk just about the to sort of put this in perspective. Okay. Of the children who have been photo listed on the Adopt US Kids website since the start of the project in 2002, 22,000 children are now placed in permanent families. 22,000 children of those who, of, who've been photo-listed are now placed in adoptive families. Is it always better, and this may be, I don't know if this is going to be my last question or not because we have a couple minutes left, is it always better to, for children to be adopted rather than to be in foster care or an institution or going from place to place that adoption is always preferable? Always, always. Children need a permanent, stable, loving family to grow up in, and they need it beyond 21. 
You need to be able to go home at Thanksgiving and other holidays. You need to have a family to be able to call on. Whether you're living at home with your family as an adult or not, you still need your parents. You need someone who has made a lifetime commitment to you. So it's that one person or two people or maybe more, if you're lucky, who are committed to you and your well-being and love you. And it's that... uh, I think that's so important to emphasize that. Um, you know, I think people sometimes get caught up into, like, I think you said in the beginning, you have to be the perfect parent or the perfect child or, the, you know, this whole idea of perfection in the ideal family and mom and dad and the two kids, and that's not what we're talking about. Right. That's not. You don't have to be perfect. You need a lot of love, and you need to make a, com- a permanent commitment to a child or children. And I want to also just say, if you're interested in adoption, that you should go to our website, which is adoptuskids.org, or call our numbers. And do you want me to give the telephone numbers? Yeah, here? this is just the time. Yeah, we have about a minute left, so let's give out all the information so that people can uh, either call or go to the website or whatever they're supposed to do. Great. So it's adoptuskids.org, and you can go there. We have a chat function. We have telephone numbers. We've got lots of information. You can look at the website and get started or make a call to our offices, and they can get you started there. Um, The telephone numbers, if you want to call directly instead of going on the website first, it's 1-888-200-4005. And if you would rather... um, speak with someone who can speak Spanish, it is 1-877-236-7831. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great having you, great having the opportunity to talk to you about obviously a very important topic. Rachel Pratt, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Adoption Exchange Association and National Membership Organization and Lead Agency in the Collaboration to Adopt U.S. Kids. Thank you very much for being, uh, for talking to me today. Great. Thank you, Catherine. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 